0: Hello, and welcome to The Celeste Stein Show. I am your host, Dr. Celeste Stein, and I hope as you guys are coming in here today, you will remember to like, share, and subscribe to my channels on YouTube and bbsradio.com. You can also support us by friending us on our social media channels. We are certainly grateful and appreciative of those who enjoy the free information and content we bring through self-help topics, news you can use, and entertainment. Now, on today's show, we will be joined by a former attorney who is familiar with having to make tough decisions in the face of adversity. Rushmi Aaron is a corporate and motivational speaker who has a very interesting story about her work as a lawyer and investment banker. Rushmi graduated with honors from Columbia Law School. She will tell us her story today that involved a decision regarding her work with a client who engaged in questionable business practices, which led to her doing six months in federal prison for bank fraud alongside a multimillion-dollar judgment against her future earnings, community service hours, and three years supervised release. Rashmi, I am so glad and uh, thankful that you have joined us today to talk a little bit about your work as a speaker, corporate and motivational speaker, and um, just tell your story so that, uh, as, as we've said just a moment ago, we definitely like to educate people about things on this show. And I'm, I'm delighted that you uh, chose this platform to, to come on today and to talk to us. So thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Stein, for having me. Pleased to be here.
0: Yes. Well, I understand that you had your own private practice as as you've noted um, in your bio after working for several major corporations. So tell me what happened that actually led to your incarceration.
1: Sure. I actually will make this very long story a little shorter. Um, so it started back in 2004 when I started my own real estate, uh, title practice, legal practice. I was working as a government attorney for Miami-Dade County, uh, on the civil side. And I was a young attorney and I left really because I got pregnant and I decided I didn't want to have, you know, I didn't want to have to travel to downtown Miami every day. And I, I, I'm definitely an entrepreneur at heart. And so I, I knew that I wanted to create my own business and my own clients. And so I left. I started my own real estate practice and started pounding the pavement and really networking and growing my business between real estate, you know agents and brokers and mortgage brokers and, and investors and people that were just buying and selling homes. So But then fast forward to 2007, three years later, uh, my and to give you some context, my husband at the time was a firefighter, so I was definitely the major breadwinner. So by 2007, we had two children, uh, the ages of two and three, and I get an opportunity in October of 07 to meet a real estate developer. And if you take yourselves back right to 2007, the heyday of real estate in the in the country, but certainly in South Florida, and it's before the crisis, right? So the, so the market is booming, and I get an opportunity to meet a real estate developer, and I'm thinking to myself, if I can get one big client that would mean volume business, which would mean financial stability, which would mean more time with my kids. And that's how I saw it. So I was really determined. I was hungry for the client. So I walked in. I remember I had a meeting scheduled. I walked into his office in uh, Miami Beach. And, you know, interestingly, the first red flag was that the developer himself never came into that conference room to meet me. He was in his office on the side, and he sent his two right hand guys in to meet me. Mm -hmm. And they began to describe these creative transactions that they had already been doing for many years with the big law firm. And they said, look, we've decided we want to leave our big law firm and work with you. Mm -hmm. Ding, 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 another red flag. Because what should have happened was (laughs) I should have said, why? Right. Mm -hmm. Why would you leave a big firm that has certainly more capacity, more bandwidth, more experience, more people, right? Uh, to, to to do the work that you need versus little old me with four people that work for me. Mm-hmm. But you know, at the time, I because I was so hungry and I was so uh, aggressive and wanting this client, it just didn't even occur to me. Or if it did, I just, I well, I know it did. I just pushed down that wonder and that fear. And I just didn't ask the questions. I just kept doing and trying to get the client. So he began to describe what he was doing, which was essentially, he was giving buyers incentives to buy his condo units. Again, this is something that many other developers were doing in South Florida. And I made a lot of assumptions. I assumed that everybody else is doing it. So it must be okay. And Mm -hmm. I remember I walked into a side office right from the conference room and I called my underwriter. Um, my um, the general counsel for my underwriter. And I began to explain that I was sitting with a developer. He wanted to do third-party disbursements on the settlement statement. And yeah. you know, basically, underwriting counsel said, well, as long as you do one, two, three, four, five, six, and your files are perfect, you'll be audit-free and you should be fine. I left out some really important information. I left out that the buyer was getting a financial benefit or at any sort of incentive because I thought at the time, I thought, or at least I convinced myself that all that mattered was my escrow's in and out. And if my settlement, if my escrow account reflects a settlement statement, which was approved by the lender, that's all that matters. Anyway, without going into more detail, I will tell you that fast forward, I did about 200 closings for this developer, uh, 100 in Palm Beach, 100 in Tampa. And then I stopped doing transactional work altogether. Uh, four years later, I got a visit from the FBI. Mm. And... No one tells you, unless maybe you've heard my story or you've been touched in some other way from a friend or a family, that when the FBI comes to your door, you can actually say, hey, can I call you back with an attorney? Can I meet with you with an attorney? Because fear takes over and human nature says I didn't do anything, so I should definitely talk to the FBI because otherwise they'll think I did something wrong. Mm -hmm. And the FBI knows this, right? They operate off intimidation. And so I ended up talking to them for four hours without an attorney. And everyone's like, you should have known better. Yeah, I should have known better. I went to an Ivy League law school. I'm kind of smart. I should have known.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: But I I didn't. Did you
0: you actually learn about that sort of thing uh, happening Um, in law school? I mean,
1: not really. It's not something you learn about in law school. You know, in law school, you learn about the law you don't learn about like the practical aspects of when the FBI comes knocking what you should do. Right. So no, I, I really didn't know. And I'm not in the criminal field. I'm a real estate lawyer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I ended up speaking to them. They left after four hours. Two years later, I got indicted. And that was a process um, in which the prosecutor kept calling my attorney and saying, look, Rashmi still has time. You know, We just want to talk to her. Maybe we'll cut her a deal. This is after I got the grand jury subpoena. And I kept saying on principle, I don't know anything. What am I going to say? Mm-hmm. So eventually when I was indicted, which was in April of 2014, I was indicted for one count of conspiracy to commit bank fraud and 24 counts of bank fraud. And I was still under this false pretense that I didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. I had convinced myself, right? Like you just, it's so easy to pull a cloud over our faces and our heads and our eyes and think we haven't done anything wrong. Um, and taking accountability is really hard. Um, yeah letting down that wall of perfection is really hard. And <clears throat> when I originally got indicted, I was going to plead not I pled not guilty. And mm-hmm. then I started to go through all the discovery with my attorney. And that was when I began to see that there was a lot of other things happening um, during that time period of 07 and 08 that mm-hmm. I didn't know about, right? Like I knew that the buyers were getting a disincentive, but as it turns out, the developer was doing like, seven other things outside of closing that I didn't know Mm. see none of that matters because if you're if you're indicted for conspiracy all that the government has to prove is that I knew one detail there could be 500 million other details in the indictment Mm -hmm. but all that matters is that I knew one
0: wow
1: and ultimately I pled guilty and I owned up to the fact that I did know that I knew that one detail and that one detail should have been enough for me to stop or at least Mm. ask more questions or at least walk away and so ultimately, but- when I pled guilty, I decided I had to walk away. Uh, I, Well, when I pled guilty, I decided I had to own up to what I did because I didn't walk away. And, mm-hmm. you know, that that ownership part was really, really hard. Uh, and I'll say, like, you know, taking off the fighting hat and putting on ownership is probably the hardest thing I've ever done in my life been up mm-hmm. until that point. Yeah. So I ended up... Um, when I pled guilty, I decided to plead guilty in August of 2014, and uh, the trial the trial originally had been set for December. So once I pled, that trial was off, and um, I then did this very intentional thing. I wanted to make sure that nobody in my community in Miami and I'm very involved in my community. I sit on a lot of boards in Miami, and so I didn't want anybody to read about it in the paper. I didn't. I didn't know if there was going to be a press release. I sat on a lot of boards in Miami. So, like, I was like, oh my God, all of these nonprofit executive directors are gonna be affected by my work, by what I did. So, I, because I'm very anal, I made a spreadsheet of like everybody in my life, meaning from like my whole life people from kindergarten, people from high school, people from college, all the way up till present day, including my children's friends, parents, and my children's teachers, the headmaster at my children's school my cycling and running friends. Like I literally called everybody. And and what I did was I made this list and then one by one in January, 2015, I started to call people. Mm-hmm. I can tell you that I could only do like four or five calls a day because this is, you know, nine years ago. I was so emotional. I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know what the outcome was going to be. And I was ashamed, right? I was walking through this shameful moment. I didn't know. How, and I, I, I started every call believing that the person would hang up on me. Even though I knew or I thought that they loved me, but I, you know, it didn't occur to me that people are very forgiving of our humanity. Mm. So the biggest lesson I learned as I was making these calls at the time was just that, that I'm an imperfect human and people still believe in me and love me. And the feedback that I kept getting is, you know, you have taken ownership or something and that says so much about you as a person. And we yeah,
0: your character. I'm sure. So,
1: yeah, and so I, the judge ended up getting 200 letters of support uh, on my behalf, a binder this thick, uh, <laughs> and you know, I keep a copy of it. It's, it's right behind me. It's like I got eulogized before I died. You know, it's really the most oh wow amazing feeling to know that I have impacted people's lives in ways that I didn't even realize. And I believe that's the true testament of our humanity, right? Like I used to define myself by how much money I was making and what car I drove and, you know, what schools I went to, what grades I got, all the typical societal definitions of yeah. success. And none, not that any of those are bad. Like I still encourage my children to get good grades and do the best they can. Uh, and I will celebrate any award that they get. But I know for myself that I have redefined what success means for me. And now for me, I I measure and I value myself based on the number of people I can impact each day and who I can touch and impact and influence. So so Mm -hmm. I, in June of 2015, I was sentenced. And on the day of my sentencing, all 200 people showed up to my hearing. People from out of town flew in, drove in and surprised Mm -hmm. me. They Mm -hmm. stood there just to let the judge know that they believed in me. Mm-hmm. and it was just such a moment of strength for me um i apologized to my community and to the judge and to my family for having made bad decisions and promised to do better so mm-hmm. then i got i had 60 days to surrender and i remember my my now ex-husband and i were very open with our children we wanted them to know the truth mm-hmm. we both of them are athletes, so we put it to them in athletic terms about, you know, when you do something wrong or you don't listen to your coach, you'll be penalized. Like, something will happen. You might get pulled out, you know, from the game or have to sit out a set it down it's because my son was playing football all the time. Uh, and But mommy has done something um, wrong, and she's going to have to go away for a year. And that mm-hmm. was, as hard as it was, it was probably the best thing I could do for my children. They were seven and eight at the time. They mm-hmm. Uh, Sorry, eight and nine at the time. They were nine and ten when I was in prison. And when I surrendered, um, I certainly had a spiritual journey as I went through this process. And so I I kind of walked into prison with a very positive outlook. Like, God, I don't know why this is happening, but there must be something good that's going to come out of it. And that faith of um, understanding what I can learn about the mistakes that I have made and the bad judgment that I have made, I knew that there was something I could do um, with it and learn from. So uh, I served, ultimately, I served about six months in prison. um, And the reason I got out early, I was sentenced to a year. And Mm -hmm. I got out early because I was asked to testify in another case. uh, Oh, so back. I'll back up a little bit. I was the government's main witness in April before I got sentenced um, because there was a co-defendant that I testified against, which was the developer's right-hand guy. The developer himself never got indicted. Mm um, Wow. Yeah. People usually like gasp when they hear that. Uh, yeah,
0: that's crazy. His mm. right hand
1: guy was indicted. I testified against him, uh, which is why I believe I got a year, you know, for a lot of reasons, I think. Um, but part of it is because I helped the, the government a lot. Anyways, while I was incarcerated, I then was transported to a county jail near Tampa uh, in Pasco County. And I actually served 23 days in a county jail there. While I was being held to testify in another case, so uh-huh. um, because of that, I got I came home early and I had three years of supervised released. I had to do 200 hours of community service, and I still have a very large multi- multi-million dollar restitution judgment against me. So I can't own an asset. I still can't vote in Florida. There's a lot of things I can't do. Um, I
0: mean, did you ever think in a million years that that decision you made would impact you in the way that it did?
1: Well, no. I mean, that's the that's the whole point, right? Is oftentimes we make these split second, convenient decisions out of haste, um, out of pressure, out of convenience, uh, not not ever thinking that seven years later I might get indicted. Um, And I actually have this really poignant story that um, in my work that I do uh, when I share on stage that I talk about this one moment. And if you want, I can share it with you because it captures. Exactly Mm -hmm. this. So the story is that it was Christmas Eve, 2007. So two months after I had just met this developer and Mm -hmm. it's eight o'clock and it happens to be that year that my entire family descends into Miami for like a reunion, right? It's the holidays. So like my aunties, my uncles, sister, cousins, everybody, I have a huge chaotic Indian family. So everyone comes into Miami. They're all here for a reunion and I'm in my kid's bedroom making them sleep. So they were two and three and they used to share a room. So my daughter was in her crib and my son was in his toddler bed and I'm in the middle sitting on my glider. If you guys know what gliders are, I was sitting on my glider singing them to sleep, which is what I used to do. Uh, and in that moment, I looked down at my Blackberry, because this is what we all had in 2007. I looked down at my Blackberry and an email comes in from a, from a real estate broker about a closing for this client, this developer that's happening in two days. And in the email, there's this one line that read, reads, the buyer t- is going to receive $70,000 from a- from this buyer incentive. Mm. And, you know, my immediate gut reaction is like, oh, that's a lot of money, right? Mm-hmm. But there was an attachment, which was the rental guarantee document, which I knew, which is how they were giving these buyer incentives which I had reviewed prior to months ago, I assumed it was gonna be exactly how I had told them to fill it How they had told me they were gonna fill it out, right? I don't even open the attachment and I forward the email to my closing coordinator, to my staff to take care of, to print out, to put in the file, assuming mm. they she'll open the, the attachment and let me know if there's something different. Mm. Now, why do I forward this email so quickly, mm. right? Well, it's almost Christmas morning. I have a house full of relatives. The kids are not yet sleeping and none of my presents are wrapped. Hmm. Right. So I forward the email. Do you know that that one email was one of the main pieces of evidence against me by the government?
0: Oh, so much right? pressure. Right. And, and
1: how many of us have forwarded an email? Right. right. Thinking like, oh, I'll get to, get to it another time. You know?
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why it's so important to share this information because it's just like something you think would or could never happen, you know? And um, so, you know, when you think about stories like this, it's just, you know, I think, uh, like you said, there's something that can be learned or garnered from every experience that we have that certainly um, should be shared so that, you know, other people can can think about it and be more thoughtful. Because uh, if you think about the times that we're living in now and all the things that are happening and going on, you know, it's so yeah. important that we hear from other people, um, you know, just like ourselves that are living life every day. And, and obviously, um, sometimes crazy things happen, you know, um, one thing, um, you were talking about some of the things, you know, you know, let's, if, if you wouldn't mind before we go to break, um, can you just kind of summarize if you had to relive, um, any of this over, which I hope you never have to, obviously. But if if you could go back, what would be uh, some of the things that maybe you would have done differently if you had the chance? Um, you know, I know you talked yeah. about a few, but you know, yeah, okay. if if you were, I know you talked to law students, I'm sure, and, and uh, people in the legal profession and others. Um, it, it, when you're talking to them, what, what would you tell them if if you could do this? And, and and have a, a redo as, as far as what you would do differently.
1: Yeah, I often get asked, what are my inflection points? Uh, so the first major inflection point is the day I met the developer. So if I could go back to 2007, October, and I walked into this guy's conference room, one, I would have demanded to actually meet with the developer, and two, I would have given all of the facts to my underwriting counsel and asked the questions I should have asked, which is, why are you leaving this big law firm? Why do you want to come work with me? You know, like actually dug deeper instead of being flattered that they wanted to work with me. Um, I, so that's one, because I think that had I, I know that had I just dug a little deeper, I would have found out that they were just trying, that they, that big law firm didn't want to work with them anymore. They knew that they could prey on a vulnerable, single, small female firm, right? Mm -hmm. Who was hungry for work. Mm -hmm. So that was, I think that's a big part of it. Mm -hmm. The second inflection point I would say is there were definitely these moments like the story I just said on Christmas Eve where where my gut was talking to me and I just got really good at shutting it down. And oftentimes I think we all do that, right? We all, our inner voice is talking to us and we don't want to listen because we're comfortable in what we're doing or we like the results of what we're doing even though our gut's saying, hey, man, this doesn't sound right, or hey, I don't think you should be doing this, right? So there's a lot of times that we don't listen to that gut, which could be our moral compass, the universe, God, karma, energy, however, whatever you want to call it, we all have it. We all yeah. know it's there. And most of us don't listen. So yeah. so that's that's the second. The third is when the FBI came, I wish I would have you know, said to them, hey, can I call you back with an attorney? And actually had time to process and think through um, the real consequences of an FBI visit. I just didn't know any better, you know, and mm-hmm. and I wish I would have. So th- those are like, in terms of the chronology, those would be the three main inflection points.
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's it's always good to reflect and think back and also, you know, share that information as I mentioned before. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to be speaking with Rashmi on her work as a corporate and motivational speaker. We'll be back right after this. A lot of things have come to a screeching halt due to COVID-19, but you should know that the court system in Tennessee is still open and holding in-person hearings for orders of protection and other types of abuse cases. If you have a hearing date, double-check on where your hearing will be held. If you need assistance on an order of protection or temporary restraining order, contact the Legal Aid Society at 1-800-238-1443 or visit our website at www.las.org. And welcome back. We're talking with Rashmi Aaron today, and we're talking a lot about leadership and decision making and what a powerful story um, Rashmi has had with her career um, and and some of the things that uh, she's been sharing with us. I know now, um, Rashmi, you are working as a corporate and motivational speaker, sharing your story with others around the world, and I I wanted to say in your messages on leadership and the multitude of factors that influence our choices, what are some of the most impactful things that you wish your audience uh, to walk away with when it comes to to leadership?
1: Yeah, so I've developed, um, well, I started out in 2017 when I did my TEDx talk, setting forth a decision-making, like a mental discipline for a decision-making process And Mm -hmm. so there's, there is a decision-making process that I speak about, but I would say at a larger level, I now share more about what I call dharma leadership. So in Hindi, dharma means the duty to yourself and to others. And I believe we have a duty to have intentional awareness of self. And so the dharma stands for decision-making, humility, accountability, relationships, mindset, and awareness. And that last A, which is awareness, intentional awareness, I really believe that understanding all of these Dharma principles ultimately lead to awareness of self. And without awareness of self, we can't really understand, you know, how to apply ourselves in other, you know, in other instances, in in other relationships. How do we interact with others with our IQ and EQ? You got to first know self. So I call it DQ. I just trademarked it. And DQ is your Dharma quotient. So I have a self-assessment test that I now work with clients. And I think all of these principles are supremely important when it comes to how we then, once we have awareness of self and where we fall on the DQ scale, allows us to be better leaders and how we interact with others. Because then we can use our IQ and EQ as leaders once we know ourselves. So that's like the main gist to what I what I do now. And um, I love the work that I do because it's very impactful and I can see the results, you know, in in a 90 minute to three hour period to six hour period, I can literally see the shift in a room. It's it's pretty magical.
0: But, you know, if you think about it, as I said before, in times like this, um, there's so much going on at the political level on down and. How do you actually convince people to get back to basics when it comes to ethical principles and behavior, not only in the workforce but in life in general? Do you see it translating that way the the work that you're doing?
1: I do. I mean, so much of my work. I mean, I actually started it started in the ethics and compliance space back in 2016, uh, and and the whole concept of accountability, vulnerability, integrity, authenticity requires us to constantly be thinking about what we are doing and is it ethical? Because it's not just, is it legal? Is it ethical? Is it the right thing to do? And which is why I believe that when we implement this decision-making process, in every single moment, in every decision, whether it's at work, at home, in our community involvement life, that's when we can start reflecting and thinking through what we're doing to make sure we're making the right decision, right? So, um, so we're not only thinking about, hey, is this going to be profitable? Hey, is this going to get me my client? Hey, am I going to be able to keep my client, which is where I was at? But more, is the decision I'm about to make the right decision, given the consequences of what I'm about to do, right? Like, and, and the, there is a four-step decision-making process, four steps in the decision-making process, which is pause, listen, reflect, decide. It is not rocket science, right? Mm -hmm. But unless you actually build this into your every day, every moment of how you make decisions, it's Mm -hmm. not second nature. And most of us don't implement a decision-making process because we're just doing, right? I I keep checklists. Like everywhere you look, I have a checklist on my phone, on a piece of paper, and I Mm want to get through my checklist every day. It just feels really good to like check things off my list. Yeah. But sometimes going through your checklist means you're going to overlook something or maybe make a bad decision because you're trying to get through your checklist really fast. And so the mm-hmm. challenge is recognizing when maybe I shouldn't get through my checklist today because I really need to spend more time on this one item. I need to yeah. give it its due diligence, right? I need to ask the right questions. But, you know, th- Those are the struggles and I think we all face them and some are the other way.
0: Some people get so mad at me because um, you know, a lot of times people will try to put pressure on you to get something done, to let's hurry up, you know, and all that. And I'm that one that is like, I have my feet stuck in the sand. I'm not going anywhere, you know, until I have it all figured out in my head, you know, and I I know that's a tough place to be for a lot of people, you know, from the fact that, you know, they, uh, want to be pleasing many times to other people, um, in getting things done. But as you, you've Certainly um, exemplified here, we certainly can get in trouble by not listening to that inner voice that's telling us, hmm, well, maybe I should wait. Maybe I shouldn't do such and such or what have you. And you really have to be thinking about that. And um, I'm going to talk a little bit with you in just a moment on um, crisis. And, uh, you know, I've spent many years as a crisis communication expert and dealing with a lot of... um, different issues um, in the workforce and uh, just just some of the things that you know come up on a daily basis but it's those moments that really define us as uh, or sets us apart from the rest of the pack in terms of how we lead and in in getting into that I want to ask you, how would you define, Leadership. What does leadership mean to you?
1: Uh, so leadership to me is when we implement a set of principles after having awareness of self and we understand how our own abilities, capabilities, skills affects those around us. And it's helping others to be better, to lead better. I don't believe leadership is del- is always just telling people what to do. I think that's an old definition of leadership. You know, when Mm. you have such overconfidence that you believe you're the only one that's right in the room and you're the only one Mm. with power in the room. um, I believe a good leader is actually creating other leaders and building and and, and supporting people around them, giving people the tools around them that they need to then also be successful.
0: Yeah, and most importantly, listening. A good leader, I think, is a good listener. Somebody who is really hearing what people are telling them you know, as potential issues and really taking that into serious consideration uh, when decisions are or tough decisions have to be made. And sometimes that just doesn't happen because sometimes we're, there's so much going on. um, Those in leadership may be trying to just get to a particular objective um, and end result when sometimes you may need to wait to have more information to make, you know, a better educated choice or decision that's going to impact or affect people in in sometimes a very big way. So I you think You know, it's that- interesting
1: because I just did a blog post uh, just before the holidays about Satya Nadella from Microsoft, and I was analyzing, I analyzed his leadership style. And the thing about Satya Nadella that has led him to be so successful and globally respected is his humility. And mm-hmm. that humility allows him to, like you said, listen, because he'll you know, he gather his top executives at Microsoft and they gather together and he doesn't just start talking. He actually invites every one of his top leaders to speak. And he listens with a humble heart because mm-hmm. he knows that he doesn't know everything, right? And so I think that that is a sign of a good leader, like you said, that listens, Um, because of their sense of self to be humble enough to know that I'm not supposed to know everything. Like I need to surround myself with other people, help them do what they need to do. Um, So, yes, I I agree with you.
0: Yeah. And that's kind of part of an organization's culture as well. Would you say um, an organization's culture is a key driver of performance of of their people, you know, you know, you just said he he listened to people. so you know that's part of the culture and how, oh. how does that drive performance?
1: Yeah, hundred percent. I mean I, 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 so I think leadership is a set of you know human performance methodology that an individual or individuals possess, right that they have, that they learn, that they that they hopefully demonstrate. And that immediately impacts the organizational culture, which I believe immediately impacts any organization's bottom line because it creates loyalty amongst the team. It creates better retention in the team, you know, which then leads to better customer and client base, um, return customers and clients. And all of that adds to not just the organization's long-term sustainability and health, but also the culture itself is a positive, nurturing, mature place to work versus you know and there's so many there's so many cultures we can point to that haven't had that um but i you know i don't like to talk negative but we can talk through places that are positive uh and i always like like i, I like to use starbucks as an example because starbucks is a very um accountable open place to work from mm-hmm. you know past experiences we could use a philadelphia incident um uh, and D, you know how he how The CEO closed every store globally for a DEI training on a specific day. Not because he had to, but because he took ownership, right? And that takes a lot of humility for a leader. Um, And that led directly to Starbucks' bottom line. Because instead of their brand being hit by that crisis, like you were talking about, it actually, um, that cultural, embedded cultural humility helped that brand from from the get-go as soon as the CEO you know, heard about the incident. Mm-hmm. So, yeah.
0: Now, when it comes to getting people to like engage in ethical behavior, obviously you want people to make right choices, right decisions, especially if you are the, at the head, you know, what do you think um, people are often missing when it comes to um, leadership and they're actually making that connection with leadership? Um, you know, I think, You know, maybe a good example might be the Republican Party. And you think about, all right, leadership, there might be some people in leadership doing um, certain things. Well, you know, how does that um, relate uh, to those who are kind of following along? You know, should you take a step back? um, you know, should you be asking yourself, what am I missing anything? You know, I think it's always good to, to reflect and, and be thinking, you know, "Hmm, is this right? Does it, you know, like, I I think sometimes it's like, you know, when you talk about like getting back to basics and stuff like that, you know, when I was growing up, I mean, I, I never saw some of the things that I'm, I'm seeing today. And that's kind of, um, you know, hurtful in a way to, to, for people to not, I guess, really think about um, being ethical. And so, you know, I'm asking you, you know, do you think um, there's something being missed? And and if so, why is that being missed all of a sudden these days, you know, is it social media? What is it, you know?
1: So I will challenge you a bit because I don't think it's that people are more or less ethical today than, than they were. I do think that media outlets and social media allows us to highlight those people more than it was mm-hmm. you know, 20 years ago, for sure. When we were growing up, um, yeah. and so even though it was happening when we were kids, um, it wasn't it wasn't so easy to highlight it, right? You couldn't just Google something, or somebody couldn't just take a video and post it. So I think that Never there's mind. that. But I do believe that there's a lack there has always been uh a lack of vulnerability uh and and this ability to recognize that if we can actually own up to something that's hard that actually is a powerful strengthening thing which is like my I, I believe I have learned this all too well given the work that I do um but most people keep digging their hole deeper because they make that first bad decision or they make, they do some, that first thing that's not ethical or not right. And then they don't, they keep wanting to hide from it. Then they, you know, and you know, to use your example or not, like, you know, they, people can grab others around them and convince them to go into the hole with them and, Mm -hmm. and create this facade. And so I think that it's, it is easy to, Continue to pretend like there's nothing wrong and that I haven't done anything wrong. Because if you can get enough people to buy into your story and to support that false story, the false idea, then you can keep perpetuating it. Right. Um, the challenge is once you finally do own it, um, you fall harder. So it's one of the things I always tell people is you know, mm. when you recognize that you've done something, as hard as it is in the moment, It's better to take accountability as soon as you recognize it versus a day from a day from now, a year from now, five years from now, because the consequences will be much worse as time goes on. In anything, whether it's a relationship.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, having studied public relations and, you know, uh, strategies and tactics, um, sometimes those those strategies and tactics, you know, can be used in a certain way to, as, as well as rhetoric, certain rhetoric can be used to kind of get people to follow in that direction. But I mean, I just would say, I, I've always been the type of person that I always like try to find out for myself. <laughs> you know, a lot of people can say things, but um, I like to make sure I have all the facts. That's part, part of the reason I became a journalist for many, many years, um you know is is that I really wanted to know um all sides of a story and I I had a, a father who um he read everything. Um you know he had like 10 papers that would come in the morning. I mean and he'd have everything read before he he took off for work, you know, and, and would watch the news as well. And I was like, why are you, oh, that's so much work. Why are you, you know, reading all this stuff? And he was like, you know, you can't get to the truth unless you know, like everything. You have to know there are all types of stories. Then there's this opinion and that opinion. Well, you have to know everything before you can really make an educated uh, decision about something or or be knowledgeable, you know. So half the key here is education as well. So Um, I think, you know, some great points being made here. We're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the importance of appropriate decision making. We'll be back in just a moment. When it comes to relationships, there are some obvious signs you can use to spot someone who might be abusive. First, they have a tendency to want to rush into a relationship. They may also show signs of jealousy and mistrust, and you could find they expect you to be perfect and will try to cut you off from other important relationships. They could also be abusive towards animals and children. To learn more about the signs of dangerous individuals and how you can identify and avoid unhealthy relationships, contact the Legal Aid Society at 1-800-238-1443. And welcome back. We're here talking with Rashmi Aaron, and Rashmi is uh going to enlighten us more um on her journey and uh just the whole process of ethics leadership morals uh decision making and so Rashmi, I wanted to ask you um you know it seems like over the past several years there there has definitely been a lot of corporate upheaval, government. And global government unrest, uh, a lot of questionable acts on the part of leadership. With that in mind, what is your mental process for actually problem solving acquired through your own experiences? I know you talked about that a little bit before, but um, yeah. do you so, do you have any other um, thing you'd like to go over there?
1: Yeah. So the decision-making process, um, first, it takes a commitment. To the mental discipline because it's not easy. Uh, I do think that most of us are stuck in this hamster wheel, right? And we keep running around this hamster wheel faster and faster and faster. Or, like I like to say, we're running around the race course of life. So, if you're on a track and you're just going around and around and around because you're trying to get to your next goal, and that next goal could be the next job or a promotion or a client or a certain amount of money, right? Like, we all have these goals. And so we convince ourselves that if we if we don't go faster and faster and faster around this race course, somebody else will get to our goal first. So I believe, so first of all, I believe that whatever goal is meant for me, rush me. nobody mm-hmm. can take from me in this world, spiritually. That's what I believe. And I mm-hmm. believe that's true for everybody. So if there is a promotion or a client that's meant for me, nobody in the world, no matter what they do, will take that from me. That that's always going to, that's meant for me. And I'm going to grab it. Doesn't mean that I can't, I ha, doesn't mean that I don't have to work for it, right? You still have to do the work. So that's the first thing. But because we're going around this race course of life so fast, it's oftentimes very hard to just basically step off the race track for a day, for a moment. And I'm not saying for a day or a week or, you know, even hours. I'm just saying the first step in decision-making is you make the intention to make sure you make the right decision by stepping off the wheel, by stepping off the race course to pause. So that the hardest step is to make the first step, which is to pause. Once mm. you pause, then, number two, you listen to your inner voice. And your inner voice, like I said earlier, is that moral compass. It's that gut feeling that we all have. We know it's there. And like the story I shared, right? It's easy just to not listen to your inner voice.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And most of but us do you, have that.
0: You, you know, do you think a lot of people lack, you know, say emotional or social intelligence, you know, that is needed and that actually impacts uh, one's ability to lead and engage in best practices? I mean, I, I, don't argue. So.
1: I don't believe so. We all have the capacity to understand what we're doing, right and wrong, good or bad, good from evil, Right. We all know it's there. And we are all equipped with this inner voice telling us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that inner voice might be, hey, you need to go ask for help. That's also part of it. Like, if you don't know the answer, then we have a, we have a requirement. If we, we're not supposed to have all the answers. You know, for some reason, people think attorneys know all the answers. So people used to think I need to know everything. But I, and I'm the oldest of three daughters in an Indian family. So I had a lot of pressure to know everything. And so I never wanted to ask for help. And that was part of the problem when I was working with this client. I didn't want to ask for help, right? Yeah. But mm-hmm. the challenge is, is you either listen to your moral compass, you listen to what your gut's telling you. And if the gut's saying, man, I don't know, man, I don't know. That means mm-hmm. you got to go ask for help or ask for a second opinion. Yeah. So that once you do that, the third is once you listen to your inner voice and you, have or somebody, a friend, colleague, parent, mentor, somebody, coach that has now, Either you have gotten guidance from somebody or from yourself internally once you hear this message, you then have to reflect, which is the third step and reflect means you're actually thinking about the consequences of the decisions that you're about to make because there is this line and on either side of the line, there's good and bad, right from wrong, right? Dark and light, dark and lightness, right? And on either side of the line is a gray area. And the gray area is where the slippery slope is, because if you're on the right side of the line in the gray area, that's the good stuff, man. That's the profitability and the disruption and the strategy and aggressive thinking and bold new, you know, bold new frontiers. Right. Star Trek. But if you're in the wrong side on in the gray area, that is the slippery slope. And it's like a slope because once you make that first bad decision, it's very hard to come back from that. So True. Right. So you can play in the gray. You just got to make sure you're on the right side of the line. So and then the fourth, once you have done all of this, pause, listen, reflect. Then you decide because then once you make a decision, you cannot worry about the consequences. So that's a kicker, right? No matter the consequences, Mm -hmm. because the decision you make will absolutely at some point cause you to lose something. And none of us want to lose anything. That's the challenge. None of us are in the business to lose anything, whether it's money, client, job, relationship, friend. But you have to be willing to lose something to do the right thing. So right. making the right decision means at some point, you will likely lose something. And you just have to know that that's better than ending up in prison like I did.
0: Yeah. Or, well, one thing though, I, I would say that I've observed, I've also done some teaching, been an assistant and associate professor, you know, at the college level. And I think, you know, having studied communications to such a significant uh, degree, I can tell you that um, communication plays a big role in all of this as well, especially social intelligence. And one of the things or observations that I've made, you know, from when I was a student to looking at students' now is the fact that um, there is all of this, these devices and social media and so forth. And in that, and always looking down, you're not looking up. So what does that mean? You're not always getting, you know, uh, the majority of communication is a lot of it's nonverbal. You know, a very small portion is what's actually coming out of one's mouth. So if you're not really looking around and paying attention and actually engage in effective what I call effective communication you can suffer um with you know which goes back to the the earlier question of emotional and social intelligence I think that's how it might impact one's ability to lead and engage in best practices because if you're if you're not fully engaged and present in the moment and uh, observing everything that's going on around you, you're bound to miss something that way as well. So I just kind of wanted to to point that out. One thing, um, you know, in in terms of lawyers, I uh, did a little bit of research. I found that in a 2017 pre-COVID survey of more than 13,000 working lawyers by the American uh, Bar Association, it revealed that 28% of lawyers suffer from depression, 19% of lawyers had severe anxiety, and 11.4% of lawyers had suicidal thoughts in the previous year. Do those statistics surprise you or um, where do you actually think we are post-COVID in terms of being better, or worse off, uh, you know, in terms of uh, looking at the legal profession.
1: Hmm. It's interesting, those numbers are not shocking to me, but I also have very personal history uh, in my family with mental illness. And mm-hmm. um, I know that the Florida Bar last year, mental health was, a, was like the main focus of the Florida Bar president um, who I know And I know that my mom is, my parents are both, but especially my mom, leaders in our community here in South Florida in the mental health space and co-founded a nonprofit to help um, mentally ill, mentally, mental illness challenged individuals in our community for housing and treatment and options. And so it's not surprising because lawyers are humans and um, mental illness is not discriminatory uh, based on profession or gender or age or race or culture. My sister passed away in 2019 from a mental health related um, Mm. issue. So a very long story. But um, I talk a lot about how leaders um, and part of part of my whole talk on Dharma leadership is when we're talking about mindset, understanding Mm. that our mental wellness is part of that because it's really important for any leader today to understand that this is a conversation that has to be happening every single day in our workplaces, because every human coming to your office is facing something in their home life, in their family, you know, something. We all go through something, right? And unless we are openly creating opportunities for our teens to deal with their mental health issues if needed, Leaders aren't doing their jobs, mm-hmm. and I think that in, in our communities as a whole, there is a severe need for more treatment options, for more housing options, for the insurance companies need to completely change how they handle um, mental health claims. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I could go on forever about this topic because I'm I'm personally impacted by mm-hmm. it, um, and so um, it's it's certainly a topic that needs a lot more conversation. Um, The stigma around mental health, and obviously you see that I talk about it very openly because it's really important, I think, that we talk about it. Um,
0: Absolutely.
1: The stigma, I think, is starting to subside a little, but it's, you know, it's not there yet. And people are, um, I mean, I'm like thinking about both of my children, one who's a freshman in college and one who's about to be a freshman in college. And it's something that I talk to them about because it's really an important conversation when kids leave for college. That is when most individuals become um, prone to like, you know, having some sort of mental health breakdown. It's really important that those of us that are parents are on top of it and having conversations with our children about it. Right. Like it's really vital.
0: Yeah, I've I've heard so many stories. And having been a college professor, I've dealt with many, yeah, many stories and sure. uh, real life situations. And yeah. um, it's so important for people, I think, to realize that to, like you said, get rid of the stigma that's been attached to that. And you you brought up a very important point earlier, just about just not being ashamed or afraid to ask for help. That goes across the board, you know, when it comes to decision making. You know, so many people um, in the workforce haven't, I guess, necessarily had mentors. Some people have, some people haven't. And so how important is that to have somebody that you can actually go to and talk to, ask questions, share with? Because that's how you get through a lot of these things and what a powerful story you told earlier of 200 people coming out to support you man that's amazing you know that um uh, is in in the courage it took for you to actually call them and share with them and i found that when i do the same thing it's so um refreshing to know that you're not alone sometimes or to know that there are other people that will you know, step in and say, hey, I mean, I've been surprised when I've shared certain things with people. They're like, well, that's nothing, (laughs) you know, in terms of what I went through, you know. And then, I mean, you know, you're just shocked because you can't believe that somebody has even uh, come close. But, you know, so many times people, I think, um, think they have to be perfect. And the fact is we're all um, human beings and we make mistakes and it's not, I think what we are are having to deal with it's how how we deal with it you know so you I know think... it's
1: interesting cuz I I actually talk a lot about the constellation of stars around me and mentoring is a big part of my work um, and a big part of what I talk about cuz relationships is the r and dharma and I believe the relationships one huge prong of it is mentors uh, and and I I like you said I do a lot of work at universities across the country both undergraduate and graduate schools. And what I tell students is seek out mentors. And it's not always somebody that's in your line of profession or chosen line of profession. Yes, of course, seek out mentors in that, line in your line of profession as well. But seek out mentors just in the community because you have heard about something that they've done and you respect them for that because you want to learn from their sense of humanity, from who they are as a person. And when you come from a place of genuine authenticity about wanting to learn from somebody and create a relationship in that way, you create lifelong mentors. And why, do I, why did I have 200 people at my sentencing hearing and writing letters to the judge for me? Because I walk into every relationship from that place. And sometimes I you know, will hear about somebody and I'll just reach out to them after having met them once and ask them to be my mentor. Like, literally just say, will you agree to be my mentor? Because the worst thing that can happen is they say no. And I'm right. 52, and I still ask people to be my mentor. Right. So it, Young people need ending. to
0: hear that. It's, yeah. it's so true. So true.
1: It's well, a never-ending yes. never commitment to learn.
0: Yes, for sure. Well, this has certainly been a very informative discussion with you today, Rashmi. And I'm so thankful that you joined us to tell your story. Um, this you so is all the time. You. What I'm sorry.
1: I said thank you so much for having me.
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We we will have to definitely talk more with each other. Of I mean, it's just been awesome. Um that is all the time we have uh for now. Just want everyone to know Rashmi Aryan is part of the Speaker's Bureau at Bishop Stein and Associates Public Relations if you'd like to have her speak at your next corporate event or conference, please call 615-681- 6588, or visit our website at bsaprinc.com for more information. We'll see you again next time on The Celeste Stein Show in two weeks at 12 noon Eastern Standard Time. Thanks for listening.